Everybody enjoys a good plot twist, right? Some of the most memorable stories, movies, you know, have plot twists. The most famous one's probably the, the plot twist happens at the ending where everything in a story is, seems to be going in one direction and then suddenly it takes a radical change and it just, you know, things stick out. It makes it memorable. Like in the movie Psycho, remember Psycho? Spoiler alert, if you haven't seen Psycho yet, plug your ears. Right? We learn at the end of Psycho, Norman Bates was his mother the whole time, right? In the sixth sense, Bruce Willis was dead the whole time. At the end of every Scooby-Doo episode, it turns out the werewolf or the phantom was the sheriff or the, the museum director the whole time. And I never saw it coming. It was a surprise every episode. Well, in today's passage, there's a plot twist. It's easy for us to miss. I'm going to read this with you in just a minute. If you have your Bible and you want to find Matthew chapter 16, we're going to read it in just a minute. And you'll find as you read through this, there is, there's something that grabs your attention. This passage has what I like to call a focus sucker. Because Jesus is going to say some things to Peter. He's going to call him the rock and say, on this rock I build his church and you're going to get the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And that, that sucks our focus and, and it, like, or we can't pay attention to anything else. But I don't think that's what would have stuck out to the disciples in this when this happened, because Jesus throws a significant plot twist, not in God's story, because God had this planned all along, but it would, just would not have been what the disciples were expecting. So this morning, I do want to help us understand these difficult, or what seems difficult to us about what Jesus was saying about Peter. We'll discuss that, what he was and wasn't saying about Peter. But mainly, and first, I want to make sure that we know what the main idea. I want you to leave here knowing the main idea of this passage. Let's read it together. Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13, we read this. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say you're John the Baptist and others Elijah. Still others say you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And Jesus said to them, but you, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to Peter, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades or hell will not overpower it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. There's our passage. And we start in verse 13. Jesus has had his disciples out in what I've been calling Jesus boot camp, training them, pouring into them. And, um, and he, uh, 
They come to the, the area of a city called Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was a uh, center of pagan idol worship in the first century. This is actually a picture that the bonds took while they were on vacation in Israel. This is at Caesarea Philippi. And what I want you to see, you see all these little alcoves carved into the, the rocks. I don't know if you can see that from back there. But those would have been places where sacrifices would have been offered to pagan idols. There might have been a little statue of some kind in there. There was a goat farm nearby so you could sacrifice animals to. And they had lots of different gods, mainly a god named Pan. Uh, it wasn't Peter Pan or Frying Pan, but it was Pan. Um, and they even offered sacrifices to the emperor and worshipped him. And that's the setting where Jesus begins asking his disciples this question, which is sort of a setup question to the big question. He says to them, who, guys, who do people say that I am? He calls himself the Son of Man, and I've explained previously that was Jesus' favorite nickname for himself. Who do people say I am? Everybody recognized that there was something very different about Jesus. He had supernatural abilities and, and, and power, and he spoke with authority. And everybody had to come up with some idea of, of why he was who he was, or what made him like he was. And that's what Jesus asked, what do people say? And the disciples, we've heard these before. The disciples give him, it's interesting, only the positive guesses. Because there are other guesses about Jesus' identity. They say, uh, some people say that you're John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. Who did Jesus' enemies say he was? Or where did he get his power? They thought he was a guy who was indwelt by the devil. But these are the positive guesses. And they all say basically the same thing. Jesus is a prophet, which was which is very complimentary. That's to put Jesus in the Israelite Hall of Fame already. But not just a prophet. He's the reincarnated form of a prophet that's come and gone. That's where he gets his supernatural ability. He speaks with power and authority because he's one of the famous prophets, but he has supernatural power because he's like come from the other side. It's very complimentary of Jesus. But it's not enough. It's not enough to say good things about Jesus. You have to come to the right answer to the big question. And that's what Jesus asked the disciples next. Here's the big one. He emphasizes the word you as he says it as we read it in the Greek, and he says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? See, it's not enough just to think that Jesus was a prophet, which he was, or was a good teacher, which he was, or was a moral example, which he was. Whether you know it or not, this is the biggest question you will ever get asked. Who do you say Jesus is? Because according to the Bible, as the only means of salvation, if you don't come to an understanding that Jesus is what Peter says here, and Peter has limited information, you have to believe what he did for you at the cross. He did for you. 
But this is the big one. So Jesus asked his disciples, what about you guys? Who do you say? Who do y'all say I am? And Peter, speaking on behalf of the disciples, speaks up and he answers this question perfectly. He says, you're the Christ and you're the son of the living God. Here's what Peter says. To call Jesus the Christ, that's the Greek name for what the, the Hebrew Old Testament called the Messiah, that's a position. It's a special king that God had been promising to send for eons. He's been promising to send the serpent crusher, the curse reverser since Genesis chapter 3. And throughout the Old Testament, who will the Messiah be and how we will know it's him? That's one of maybe the main question of the Old Testament. He's a, he's a descendant of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah and King David. And Peter says, you are that guy. You're the one we've been waiting on. But that's not all. You're also the son of God, which for Peter to say, for Simon to say, uh, is to say, is to give Jesus the attributes of God the Father. He's divine. That's not really a surprise. We just saw the disciples worship Jesus in a boat a few stories ago. And Jesus accepts that worship. So we know they have an idea that he is, that he's divine. Now to call God the living God was a Jewish way of differentiating their God from all the other gods that people tended to worship. They're in Caesarea Philippi. They're surrounded by all this pagan worship. And when, when Peter says, you're the son of the living God, means you're not a God like these lifeless, fake, idolatrous gods. You are the son of our God, the son of the God of Israel. And in verse 17, we see, we know who Peter says Jesus is. Right? And that's who I believe Jesus is, and it's who I want you to believe that Jesus is. But in verse 17, we see this is who Jesus believes Jesus is. Because as soon as Simon Peter says, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God, Jesus lets us know that's the right answer. Jesus answered and said to him, this is verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, which is in Greek a way of saying son of Jonah. Uh, Peter's daddy was named Jonah, apparently. You're blessed because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. Jesus gives Peter, Simon Peter, his own beatitude here. Remember the beatitudes? Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are the meek, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Right? Best, uh, blessed are this, blessed are that. Peter gets his own. Blessed are you, Simon Peter. But why? Why is Simon, son of Jonah, blessed according to Jesus? Because he came to the right answer to the big question. Jesus said, who do you say I am? Peter says, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And he says, you are blessed because God put that answer in your brain and in your heart. God revealed to you that answer because flesh and blood, even your flesh and blood, Simon Peter, 
can't come to that understanding on their own. God has opened your mind and put his thoughts in your mind. And that's you. You so know who I am. It's like God himself wrote that answer on your heart. So does, does Jesus believe that he was the Messiah, the Christ? Does Jesus believe he was the Son of God? Absolutely. Absolutely. And now, now we've come to the plot twist portion of this episode. Nobody's going to get a mask pulled off of their face to reveal they were the museum director, but this is the plot twist portion. Nothing so far should be unexpected for us as readers of this gospel. Um, we've heard bad guesses about who Jesus is before. That's not surprising. We've seen the disciples worship Jesus, so we shouldn't be surprised that they think he's divine or the Messiah. We shouldn't be surprised that Jesus accepts that explanation for who he is. Matthew started this book by telling us this is the story about Jesus, who's the son of David, who's the Messiah. And he told us how he was, um, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, making him the son of God. No surprises. But here's the surprise. When Jesus says, you are right, Simon, that is who I am. I am the Christ. I am the one the scriptures promised is going to take the throne of David. And because I'm divine, that explains how my kingdom can last forever and ever and ever and, and how a person can have an eternal kingdom, which is a problem for people because we tend to die. I am the Christ. And I think what the disciples would have been expecting Jesus to say is something like this, I am the Christ, I am the king, and you wait, I am going to build my kingdom, and you wait till you see my kingdom. You wait till you see me reign in power, and I'm going to judge the nations. That's, that's all coming. That's not what he says. Jesus says some other things in this verse that I'm going to skip for now, because I want to highlight for you the main idea. In verse 18, here's the main idea of this passage. Jesus says, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not overpower the gates of Hades or maybe the gates of death, however you want to understand. Uh, That word is fine. Whatever else Jesus says in this passage, we're going to cover it. Don't let it distract you from this being the main idea. Here's the main idea. Jesus, they identified Jesus as the Christ, the king who's going to reign from David's throne and reign over all of the kingdoms of the world. God promised that's going to happen. Jesus says, yes, that's me, but I'm going to build something else before I start my kingdom. I'm going to build a church before I start the kingdom. That's the plot twist. I think this would have been the record scratch moment. The wait, 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 what? What's this about a church? If you're the king, start the kingdom. I want you to notice a couple of things about this. First, I want you to notice, well, first I'll tell you what the church is. Jesus isn't talking about a local church, like our church. And he's certainly not talking about a building. A building really isn't the church. People are the church. The church that Jesus is talking about is every person who comes to the understanding of the big question. 
Every person who accepts Jesus as their Savior, every person who comes to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who saved me by bearing my penalty at the cross, as soon as someone believes that, they become part of the universal church. And Jesus promised he would build the church. That's really important to understand. And here's why. What's exciting, you and I can be a part of what Jesus promised to do. He promised to build his church, to grow his church. Every time somebody else hears about Jesus and accepts him as Savior, they become part of the church. Jesus just built his church a little bit more. We can be a part of what Jesus promised to do. But here's why it's important to remember that he is the one that's responsible for doing it. Because sometimes our best efforts won't result like in, in a growth that we want to see. And if it's our responsibility to save people and build the church, we can feel like failures when we're doing exactly what he wants us to do. How many of you have unsaved family members you're still praying for and you wish they would see the light? Ultimately, Jesus promised to build his church. It takes the pressure off. On the other side, when, a, when there is success, when there is growth, when the church does expand and more people believe and be baptized, who gets the credit according to this verse? Who builds the church? Jesus. Don't ever give a person credit for building the church. If a person builds something, I don't care. I don't know what it is, but it ain't the church. Because if Jesus didn't build it, it ain't the church. Because he promised to build the church. We can be involved. And the rest of the New Testament tells us how to be involved. A lot of what the epistles, the New Testament epistles are, is what we're supposed to do to be involved with what Jesus promised to do. But he is the builder of the church. He's had the disciples in Jesus' boot camp. He's been showing his disciples. He's been teaching them object lessons that all go like this. You stay connected to me, I'll do miracles through you. They did two miraculous feedings, right? Jesus provided the power. Who put in the labor? The disciples took the baskets around and miraculous and fed all those people that miraculous food. Peter walked on water, right? If you're with me, I will do through you things you can't do. But here's the main thing he wants to do. As soon as they recognize who he is, he says, let me tell you what I want you to be involved in doing. I'm going to build my church. And whatever the rest of this passage says, it's about how Jesus wants to build his church. And guess how Jesus wants to build his church? He wants to use people. And the first person to confess that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God, Jesus is going to say, you're the first stone, you're the first rock in this thing I'm going to build. You're the first one to make the confession, you're the first one to be a part of the foundation. And he's been adding stones, little rocks, precious jewels, Peter would say later, as he continues to build his church. Before I start my kingdom, I'm building my church. 
Jesus says. Okay. There's the main idea. Jesus promises to build his church. We should want to be involved in what he promises to build. It's our purpose. It's how we glorify Christ. But now that Jesus has, excuse me, now that Peter has told Jesus who Jesus is, it's like Peter says, or, I'm going to rewind that and try that whole sentence over again. Okay? Once Peter tells Jesus who he believes Jesus is, it's like Jesus says, okay, Peter, now let me tell you who you are. Okay? Here's what Peter, so Peter has just, who do people say I am? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Great answer, Simon. Now let me tell you who you are. I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you release on earth will have been released in heaven. I forgot something I want you to hear. You ever wonder why Jesus said, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell or the gates of Hades won't, under, won't overpower? What's the gates of hell? Like, what's scary about gates? What, are they going to pinch your fingers in that thing? Right? They, what does it mean that the gates of hell can't overpower the church? In an ancient city, even ancient compared to Jesus, a walled city like in the Old Testament, the gates of the city is where the powerful people hung out. It's literally where they held court. It's where the judges sat. It, it was where the army defended. It's where the power of a city was at the gates. So what Jesus is saying, I'm going to build my church and the most powerful forces involved in hell and death cannot stop, cannot overcome what I'm going to build. All right, so here's who Peter is. First thing Jesus says He's only called him Simon up to this point. Simon, your daddy named you Simon, but I'm going to tell you right now, you are Peter. Before this day, I don't believe there was a single solitary person who was ever named Peter in the history of mankind. You know why? Because it was the word for rock, and you would really have to hate your kid to just name him rock. Okay? This would be like me naming one of my kids, like chair, or table, or dirt, okay? Uh, he had only been called Simon up to this point. Now when the gospel writers write their story, he became so famously known as Peter, sometimes they called him Peter or Simon Peter earlier in the story so that readers would know who he was talking about. But this is where he gets the name Peter, and it's just a word that means rock. I tell you, from now on, I'm calling you rock. And he meant that complimentary, complimentarily. Um, by the way, Jesus almost surely spoke Aramaic. This was written in Greek. Petros is the Greek word for rock. Okay, and that's why we translate Petros into the name Peter. But Jesus, in Aramaic, he probably said Kephas, which is the Aramaic word 
for rock. And that's why later on in the Bible, sometimes you see somebody called Cephas. That's just from the Aramaic word for rock. It's just somebody calling him rock. Okay, really, his name's rock. That's his name. In English, in uh, Kephas in Aramaic, and, and, and Peter in Greek, and in English, rock. Okay, that's what his name means. And he says, I'm going to call you rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. I'm going to build my church on this rock. And here is where Protestant and evangelical Christians start to get nervous. And we get nervous not because of what this text says. We get nervous because of what the Roman Catholic Church has done with this verse. The Roman Catholic Church invented, about 250 A.D., later than that, um, the papacy, the idea of a pope, who they say is the vicar of Christ. You know what a vicar is? My former Lutherans know. We know what a vicar is. The vicar of Christ is what the pope is. That is the assistant to Christ, like executive secretary to Jesus. The pope is vice Jesus on earth, supposedly has authority over every real Christian on earth, supposedly. And the Catholic Church says, this is where that began. Because Jesus said he's going to build the church on Peter and give Peter the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Now, obviously, uh, I don't buy that reading of this passage. But what we have done as Protestants and evangelicals, we spent a lot of energy trying to wash the, the, uh, the rock out of this passage. We don't want it to say what the Roman church says it says, so we try to make it say something way different. Here's explanations that are still taught by people who love the Lord and are smarter than me. One explanation is this. Well, here's what happened here. I mean, Peter's not the rock. That's what we want to say, is that Peter is not the rock on which Christ will build the church. So one explanation is this. When, what, when Jesus said, I'm going to call you Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, he actually pointed at himself while he said that. You are Peter, but on this rock I'm going to build my church. I don't buy that. Okay? That's, that's a pretty big detail for Matthew to leave out if he is trying to tell this story, okay? Um, Here's another one. Peter's not the rock. Peter's confession is the rock. So Jesus said, Peter, you are the rock, and on your confession that I'm now calling the rock, what you said about me, that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, that's what I'm going to build my church on. All right. Here's my contention. If the Roman Catholic Church had never invented the papacy, nobody would ever believe anything about this passage except that Jesus is the rock. Excuse me, that Peter is the rock Jesus was talking about. That's just what this says, okay? It's the only way this makes a lick of sense, grammatically. He names the guy rock and then says, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. Who's the rock? The guy he just called rock. Right? It's the only way this makes a lick of sense unless we're trying very hard to make it not, Peter not be the rock. But we only do that in response to what some other people have done with this that they shouldn't have done. 
Peter is the rock on which Jesus said, I will build my church. That's what this says. Now, however, this is a giant however. Jesus telling Peter that he's the rock on which Jesus would build Jesus' church in no way allows for or um, excuses or predicts or establishes the papacy or papal succession or the idea that there would be a pope. In fact, the, the New Testament doesn't allow for a papacy in any way, and I want you to see that or understand that. There's no hint of the papacy in the New Testament that there could be a vicar of Christ, Jesus' vice president. There's no sniff of that in the New Testament. In fact, the New Testament makes clear there is no authority over a local church between Jesus Christ and what's called a plurality of elders. There's the organizational chart for a biblical church. Jesus is the boss, and there is a plurality, which means more than one elder, trying to understand what Jesus wants done with his church. In, uh, in Titus, in 1 Timothy, the, the plurality of elders is established as the, the authority of a local church. This is why here at our church, we have four elders. And everyone, I am one elder, but I'm no more of an elder than the other three elders. Right now, they are uh, Josh and Max and Brad, Dylan. That's the plurality of elders. Because not only is there not one vicar of Christ over the entire church at large, there's not even supposed to be one guy over one local church. I'm not even supposed to be the ultimate boss of this place. Nobody is. Um, how else do we know? Jesus is not establishing the papacy here. You see this language right here where he says, Peter, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven and whatever you release on earth will have been released in heaven. I'll tell you what that means or how that happened in a minute. But later in this book, Jesus is going to say that exact same thing, only he's going to include all of the disciples in it. So this wasn't just for Peter. It was only told just to Peter this time. Uh, In the book of Acts, which is the earliest years of the church. We do not see Peter acting as the authority over all of the church. No, there are disagreements in the New Testament church. Nobody ever says, well, we should just ask Peter. He's the Pope. All of the decisions are corporate. Peter never assumes for himself any authority outside of elder an apostle. In fact, there's a story where the apostle Paul comes to Peter and Paul opposes Peter to his face. And it is shown and decided among the other Christians that Paul was right and Peter was wrong. Peter never considered himself authoritative over the other apostles. Uh, in fact, nobody did for over 200 years. A guy named Stephen I decided, hey, this verse means Peter was the boss over all Christians and I'm that guy now. And it was so ridiculous, nobody accepted it. Now, he got power consolidated and pulled it off, but that doesn't mean it's what Peter 
thought, because Peter didn't think that. It would be very similar to today if we had an American president who somehow consolidated power to make himself emperor. And he said, you know, George Washington really thought he was the first emperor. And I'm just doing what George Washington did. We would all say, what? For 250 years, we, we have known George Washington did not want himself to be king. But just because a guy was able to pull that off and use that as an excuse doesn't mean it would be right. My opinion, that's what the papacy is. All right, so that's what this doesn't mean, that Peter was the rock. But what does it mean? Here's what it means. First, it's a very common biblical metaphor that the church is a building and stones, brick by brick, God builds the church up. And it shouldn't offend us at all that apostles are foundation stones in the church. In Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul said that the church has been built on the foundation of the apostles, plural, and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. If the church is a big building project, Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, the foundation. It sets the lines and the direction. And then he laid the apostles into the rest of the foundation of the building and everything else we've been built on the foundation of the apostles set in line by Jesus. Peter's just the first stone. He's the first stone. Now, what does it mean, though, that he got the keys to the kingdom? The keys to the kingdom of heaven. I'll explain that to you briefly. After, this is right here, Jesus says, I'm going to give you, Peter, the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and what you choose to open will be opened. What you choose not to open won't be opened. Um, Jesus dies, is buried, rises from the dead, meets with the disciples and says, you are my witnesses, you go into all the earth and, and, and spread the gospel, right? At first, only Jews are Christians. They're only Jews. And the first fight among the early Christians is, does somebody have to become Jewish religiously, convert to Judaism in order to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus? This was, a, this was a fight. It was the first argument. Um, I read this wrong. I want to make sure you see how, what this says. Jesus says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom and whatever you bind on earth will have already been bound in heaven. Whatever you release on earth will have been released in heaven. Jesus said, I'm going to make sure, Peter, that you come to the decision that God wants you to come to. And here's how, here's how Jesus, Peter used the keys of the kingdom. Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, stands up and preached, only Jews in attendance, and he says, you Jews, if you uh, believe in Jesus, you can be saved. He, so he cuts the ribbon on the kingdom of heaven for uh, access to the kingdom by becoming a part of the church to Jews. Later on, he's up north with Samaritans. Samaritans ethnically are sort of half Israelite, half Gentile. And Gentiles and Jews did not like each other. But Peter sees some Samaritans who have believed in Jesus for their salvation. And Peter decides they should be a part of the church too. And so he opens, cuts the ribbon, opens access to the church, to Samaritans. And then in Acts 10, God sort of drives 
Peter to a guy's house named Cornelius. Gentiles. And Peter is there and watches them become believers. And God does a miracle in their lives that lets Peter know these Gentiles are saved the same way I was saved. And he goes back and tells the rest of the apostles, Gentiles are saved just by faith. They don't have to become Jewish because I've seen God do this. And in that way, Peter, he says, we we should open up the church to non-Jewish people, people who do not follow the food laws and circumcise their male children and, and go to the temple and all that stuff. And that's how Peter used the keys that Christ gave him to open access to the kingdom of heaven. It's a one-shot deal. In that already access to every kind of person is open, it's confirmed. And the keys are over. Now, they weren't handed down to another guy. Another. In fact, in the rest of the book of Acts, Peter stops being a main character. He just kind of goes away. Because his job with the keys of the king, he doesn't set himself up as the potentate over Christendom. It's foreign to the New Testament. All that makes sense. A lot of information, not terribly life-changing. But don't miss the main point. Because let me tell you what is life-changing. If you come to answer the question, this question, who do you say Jesus is correctly, here's what the God of the universe does. He makes you one more stone in this church. One more brick in the wall. Don't make me sing the Pink Floyd song. And here's why, here's why that's a life changer. Jesus promised to build his church. And he's not constantly replacing bricks. Once you become a member of the universal church, you become a stone set in place in the wall in the building that Jesus promised to build, let me tell you what you are. You are His. You have been made into something and a part of something He promised to build 2,000 years ago. And that makes you just one part of His promise. Your salvation and what he's making you into is more about Jesus than it is about you. And that's comforting. Because you were good enough when you were, uh, when you were sinful and far from God and you're still good enough because you're saved by the blood of Christ built into this thing he promised to build long ago. And now we get to look forward to after we've been built into this thing, now we get to look forward to what he has planned for us next. Heaven and then the kingdom. Guaranteed by by his blood. And once a month, we come to this table just to commemorate what Jesus did. Jesus' blood gets us into that wall. We're saved by faith. And we're not kept there by our behavior. We are there because Jesus saved us. He will hold us fast, right? And so when we come around uh, the table, actually for our meditation, I'm not going to talk. 
I'm going to pray in a second, and Mike's going to come up, and he's going to sing. He's going to sing for us for our time of meditation before the guys come up, so guys don't come up yet. Um, because what, we, what he has guaranteed for us is not that just we are part of the wall, but he has guaranteed an eternity for us with him. Uh, Father God, I just thank you for, for your word. I thank you for your promise to build this church, uh, this universal church. Thank you that we can just be just one more little stone in what you have promised to build. And thank you that you have guaranteed for us access into the kingdom one day that you will begin after you are done building your church. We love you, Lord. Uh, Bless our time around the table in Jesus' name. Amen.